All right, everybody, it's time for another episode of Rockstar Violinist. This is Electric Violin Shop's podcast about string players who are truly rock stars. I'm Matt Bell. I'm so excited about this season. We have some amazing artists lined up for you, and this week's rock star is no exception. I met Raz when she came through Durham a couple years ago on tour, and we became fast friends. You'll see why in our chat. She is super engaging, incredibly passionate about creating music, exploring new sounds, how to get them, and one of my favorite things, gear. Raz is a proud Wood Violins artist. So our sponsor for this episode is Wood Violins. I just got to spend a couple of days with Mark and his crew at their Electrify Your Strings event in Cary, North Carolina, where I live. You won't meet a more committed ambassador for the field of electric strings or string education. And for most people, that would be enough to occupy 100% of their energy. But Mark also owns and operates Wood Violins, makers of the Viper Violin that changed his life, Raz's life, and my life. Oh, and he's an Emmy-winning artist who's toured and recorded with, well, pretty much everybody who's anybody. We'll talk more about that in a while. Raz and I met up at the NAM show in Anaheim, California. She owns a mobile recording studio that just happens to double as a tour van. So we met there and recorded this interview in her van. By the way, you're listening to a tune called Tide is Rising from her project called Direct Divide. You'll learn all about it in a few minutes. So off to our interview with Raz, rock star violinist. talking earlier today we're at the nam show by the way um raz and i don't get to see each other much outside of that um unless she happens to be in north carolina but um we're talking earlier today um and you were a marching band person i was yeah but you were like a violinist in a college marching band that's right so i walked in to the first kind of freshman meet and greet. I knew I wanted to join the band because they just looked insane. This is not your stereotypical no, marching band. No, everybody went to school. So I went to Stanford and uh, my brother also went to Stanford. So the marching band plays every graduation. He's four years older than me. So right as he was leaving Stanford, I was arriving. So I went to his graduation before I even attended. And the marching band was playing and they were insane. Wearing every color under the rainbow and the worst combinations they could think up jumping up and down, screaming at the top of their lungs, high kicks, just any antics you could think of, they were doing it. And there was a violinist on stage with them. And I kind of, I'd been playing, I loved playing non-contemporary stuff, non-classical stuff, been playing a little bit of jazz at the time, and I was just so ready, (laughs) A, to not be in high school, and B, to do something crazy, because I was so straight-laced in high school just to get to Stanford. No, I was I was very very focused on being a scientist, and so being at Stanford, I I that was music was my way of cutting loose from my classes, from all of that stuff. So I walked in and I said I play violin, and they went, yeah, go go hang out with the piccolos. <laughs> okay. Like, all right. We'll read Trouble Clef, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I could at least read the music, but instantaneously there was no way for me to move around with it. The, we have those little sheets, just like any marching band. They're about the size of like a. a index card yep. 
and you have them on a little key ring and you shift them over as you need them. And I had to instantaneously memorize as many songs as I could on our song list because there was no way with the running around that we did that I was going to be able to read the music. So it all became just ear training and practicing and eventually I was actually just playing the trumpet parts because that's what I could hear. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Was... So you, you were playing an electric violin. Yeah. Meaning you needed an amp. So where's the amp? In a wagon or something? I wish. That would have been so much more comfortable. I had a couple amps. Uh, I had a Vox, one of those Vox battery-powered amps, uh, about 16 pounds, and I had two guitar straps, one that was a seatbelt, so I could unhook it fast, and that went um, over my shoulder, no, around my waist, and then another guitar strap over my shoulder to keep it as close to my hip as I possibly could as I ran around, but I had bruised legs for a long time. And the second was even better. Um, I found a company online that made amps out of PVC pipe, like the T-section of a PVC pipe, and they're called pipe bombs. Awesome. And they say that on the top, and those are rechargeable, so I could charge it up before running onto the field, and so I found a, a kid's Dr. Seuss backpack, and I stuck the, the actual output speaker of the pipe bomb in a hole I cut in the backpack, so you'd unzip part of it, and there would be the speaker. And then I, then I could run around with the amp on my back rather than on my hip and that so was the people behind you were getting a show they were but it's a marching band right. we're on a football field and, and finally i just realized that nobody could hear me anyways so i ditched the amp when we would go to some of the games i'd have it on the stands but when we were on the field i i just i'm like i'm here to just let people know that this is wacky and crazy and we don't care what you think i mean there were people playing kegs there were people playing right. literally a kitchen sink yeah, the Stanford Marching Man, for those of you who don't know, is an institution in in the marching man world. I was a marching man guy, actually. I was in one of like the most uptight military-style bands in the country at Michigan State. So the Stanford Marching Man is like, take everything that was my experience and just put a minus sign in front of that. <laughs> but you weren't playing violin. No, I was a trumpet player. Okay, so you were the ones being super loud. Yeah, we were loud. It's the job, right? That's why I can't hear anymore. That's why i got to have an electric violin. <laughs> so you're... We'll, uh, we'll rewind and talk about early life later. So leaving Stanford, yeah. you have not a degree in music. No, I have a biology degree from Stanford. And while I was there, the marching band was my social... Like I said, my social outlet, how I really diffused all of stress from classes and then I started meeting other musicians and uh, a friend of mine came to me and she's a trombone player, a sousaphone player and a bassist and she went, this girl has approached me about being in an all-girl rock band and we can't find another guitarist so you've been playing violin in the marching band and it kind of sounds like a guitar so why don't you just come in and be our lead guitarist because she she wants to sing and our play backup guitar she wants to play rhythm right so i was like well that sounds like a blast and yeah. you know it's college why not and so we got together all four girls all girl bands and we started gigging and playing covers and then we started writing our own material playing parties on campus and then kind of going out to the bars in the area and then all the way out at the time we managed to get all the way out to modesto from the Bay Area and Modesto and Fresno are not nice places <laughs> to be if you are trying to just go in bars, but they are really fun people. And I think 
we just had this whole network of people in Modesto and Fresno that glommed onto what we were doing. And that was really where I started to think of my violin more in terms of a guitar because that was the role that they really wanted me to fill. So what were you playing at that time? You said when you were in the marching band at Stanford, you were, you know, I mean, you're not taking a Viper out on no. a marching band field. No, I was, I found a $100 violin off of eBay and that one broke instantaneously. And then I bought, I think I shelled out maybe 250 300 for the next one and that one held up. But I wasn't really trying to make great tones with it, but I sure. bought a, I was trained on viola and violin both playing viola classically at the time when I was going to college. So I was comfortable with playing on a C string. I was comfortable with playing on the E string. So I was like, well, five makes sense because right. I can play violin and viola. So I bought this five string, which actually had a, it was, it was a, it wasn't a passive DI. It was an active DI, mm -hmm. like it, active preamp inside yep. the instrument. And so it took a little nine volt battery and that made it really easy to work with. I don't even know the maker at this point. It was just something I just took around. And that, I really realized fast that that wasn't going to fly for the all-girl bands. Trying to really make tones that were going to compete in that setting with a guitar and a bass and drums was not going to happen. So I knew about electric strings. And actually, I bought it from the electric violin shop at one of its earliest times. Oh, look at you. My first violin. And that was a Mark Wood Sabre. Mm -hmm. And it was all black. Some idiot had painted it all black from a beautiful sunset burst. Oh. But I think they were selling it pretty cheap. It was a resale okay. through Electric Violin Shop. And so I bought that for $600, which is the most I'd ever spent on any instrument at that point. Right. And, and they they're kind of went, went off from there. But that introduced me. It was a gateway me. violin. It was a gateway violin. Well, the, the first $100 yeah. POS was a gateway violin. <laughs> and then I that's, I've that's steadily the increased model, the POS. The POS. Model. Yep, that's it. I've had one of those. I've had more <laughs> than one of those. And that was fun. And, and that started teaching me a lot about working with sound and mm -hmm. working with the violins and trying to stay above from a soloist point of view or a lead guitarist point of view, trying to stay above a full band's worth of sound, which was a, a big challenge. And there's nobody to help you with the complexities right. of that instrument because every sound guy is just like, I don't know right. what that is. But uh, we kind of just kept trying things out and borrowing pedals from each other. And thankfully, the, the bassist's father had been playing in bands locally his whole life, and it was his house that we practiced in. So he had... His buddies would come in and out, and they were musicians who had been local staples forever. And they were the ones who would sort of make suggestions or bring a pedal here and there for me to try. And the sound kind of built from there, because I, I was traditional where the only way to get a good reverb, just go to a different hall. Yeah. <laughs> Move to a different room. That's that's your different right. reverb. So, so Yeah, process. so that's how you discovered effects and amps and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I was pretty primitive for a really long time. I think I first started hooking into the sound that I, I still think is really my sound when I got, somebody lent me a, a tube DI, basically. Mm -hmm. So you, I was starting to feel that tube saturation, and, and it definitely made a difference. And so I had that, and I had Electro Harmonics Holy Stain reverb pedal, and that was, that was my, my rig. For many years was just two pedals di'd not good but and that's funny because like knowing what your rig is now I know. 
humble beginnings, right? <laughs> well, everybody starts somewhere, and sure. I think it's so nice now that the resources are, are out there to to test or to at least bounce ideas off of other people because YouTube was just starting right. when I was in college. Uh, I had actually one of the first YouTube accounts. I had to go... I seriously had to sit there the day I wanted to reclaim that YouTube account. And stream of consciousness enter passwords until I finally hit the right one. Oh, my. It was so bad. I can't even imagine. Like, I can't. I'm sitting here <laughs> trying to figure out, like, what one of my passwords would have been 10 years ago. There's no way I would ever come up with. Yeah. No, there's no way. Maybe that means I'm too predictable. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're predictable. So yeah, so that was all through college. People would ask me, I had a biology major, and people would ask me what I was minoring in. It's very academic, obviously, right. oriented school. And I would say, oh, rock band. Rock band. And then they went, the video game? I'd roll my eyes. Sure. No. Yeah. yeah. So we toured with that band, that all-girl band, on the East Coast for a summer between uh, my junior and senior year. And that was, oh boy. That was, so that was my first experience touring, and we DIY'd it, and that's kind of what I've done since. But I think having that, we just decided to do it, and we up and did it. I turned 21, and we flew in to New York and borrowed the, the guitarist's parents' car and put 5,000 <clears throat> miles on it in the course of a 10-week summer. That's awesome. <laughs> Had gotten a lot of shenanigans. But so what was the name of the band? Blow Up Dolls. That's awesome. <laughs> With a Z. All one word. <clears throat> and we had the be- I mean, the, the guitarist was a branding person. So she was in school for marketing and just could just nail it. So our branding at the time was so on point. Our We had a logo, was a bomb with a kiss on it. So all of our t-shirts had, we had the, the really nice women's tank tops and mm. the bomb with a kiss was like right on the hip just oh yeah very sassy very fun our we were writing original stuff it was very much like the donnas that's probably the closest so have you got tape from this band yeah i'll give you some i'll yeah. give you some tracks we're, we're gonna listen to some blow up dolls right now
a live album, but if we have it, I have it. That's impossible. So you're just, you're shredding on the violin? Mm -hmm. And my tone is so different. It's so funny right. going back. So we get to do. on any of that? I was singing some backups, but I was mostly playing all just the lead, the lead stuff. And at that point, no, I didn't have the, the full Viper. Um, I got that junior year. So by the time we toured, I had it. But I wasn't comfortable with the idea of singing and playing. I like to sing, but whenever I would sing lead, uh, I would put the violin down. That's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was more comfortable for me at the time. And it wasn't until I went to the Mark Wood camp where I started, like Joe Denison was the person who did a masterclass on, on how to even start approaching being able to sing and play at the same time. And Sean Grisham, there's a Cajun cellist, was there teaching people how to do basic looping. So that camp, their first year was right after I graduated from college and I just turned 21 and I basically pulled my money together and I said, I really want to go. Because I knew about Mark. At that point I had bought a Viper. And I bought a Viper 100% sure that that was the direction I wanted to go. I don't think I even looked at another maker at all. Just the, the shape of it, the craziness of it was so appealing. And uh, I got it at school, I mean, it, at college, and it was, the box is so big. <laughs> Just going, what is that? It's so crazy. I could move into this. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And uh, I had, we had a big show. We had a battle of the bands for San Francisco in a week by the time I got my Viper. And I, I opened it up and I'm like, I'm learning. I'm, I'm getting this down. And it was a six string. So I, okay. I wasn't brave enough for the seven, but I'd been comfortable with five. So I decided to go for the six, fretted. Um, I still have that violin. It is way beat up at the moment. It needs some, it needs some TLC. Yeah. You know a guy. I do know a guy. It turns out we're good friends. Kenny! That's the luthier of Mark Woods. Is Kenny and Joe, the two amazing luthiers yeah. that work in the shop in New York. And, and since, uh, since I've met them, we've become very good friends. And they've done me some extreme favors, like a second Viper that I'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. But that first, it was red. It was, it's gorgeous. All the Vipers are gorgeous. But I had a week to learn it, and I'd never played with frets. And I had never played with the instrument. The, there was no directions. It didn't come with directions on how to set it up or where to put the paddles or how it worked. Right. At all. <laughs> so. I, was, I was trying to think back. Because I bought my first Viper in the late 90s. This is back when Mark was still making them. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think it was the same deal. Yeah. It came and it didn't have any instructions. You just sort of, well, I'd seen a picture of him wearing one, so it's just sort Here it of, is. well, I guess Good maybe luck. like this. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think I did the same thing. I got it, and I think within three days I was on stage with it. Yeah. I don't always recommend that if people are a little hesitant getting into the Viper world, but if where there's a will, there's a way, right? You're going to make it swear, work. Man. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. Well, at first, I tell people now, working with folks who are a bit nervous about the Vipers, especially with the fretted Vipers, not to look at their hands while they practice right. for a while, just to get used to the tactile sensation. But we're not used to seeing gradations in chromatic scales. Right. We're used to thinking about it, you know, one, two, three, four, five, you know, Suzuki, yep. Suzuki trains. We know numbers. Yep. I tell people just ignore them. Just ignore the frets. Pretend they're not there. Yeah. 
And it's easier if you don't look at your hands. You, your hands know where to go. Yep. They, they know what they're doing. By the time you're more comfortable with that, then you can start looking at the frets and getting a sense of, I'm, I'm trusting that I'm doing it right. Right. The right sounds are coming out. And then it, it's made, the frets have made me think about the layout of the fingerboard differently. Absolutely. I think they are a roadmap to understanding how a whole different slew of people outside of the classical world communicate music to each other. Because there are people from every walk of life who, they don't read sheet music. How are you going to communicate? And chord charts are one way, or even just chord patterns, one, mm -hmm. fours, and fives. There's so many different methods that people have developed because they didn't have the, the fortune or burden, either way, of a classical education. So we all have to communicate. And now being able to communicate with the guitarist, with the frets, is so valuable because if somebody, if I'm playing a gig with somebody and the singer wants to change the key, night of, they're not feeling well, right. you can pull everything down a half step very, very easily and not think about it. You just reset your hand in the new position and now this is one. Yep. And that, that was, learning all of that made it also easier for the, the girls in the band to communicate with me because they were all fretted. And then we were... That made it a lot easier to co-write with them when I had frets. So you graduate college. Did the band keep playing, or did it? Did it? You guys disband? And we did. Um, ironically, I was very firm about me not becoming a professional musician, and I was very clear with them about that. And they were kind of like, "Okay, guess that sucks, but fine. Right. We understand that you're going to be a scientist." And got a job in science. Uh, stayed in the area, so we were still playing and gigging and practicing. And then, you know, things started to kind of slowly unwind with them at that point where we weren't writing as much in everybody's lives. You know, all of us were out of school. We all had jobs. I was driving 45 minutes each way to practice twice a week, and we weren't doing much with it. Right. And that was, I was like, I need, but I still wanted that outlet. Like, music has always been an outlet for me to be very creative, and I went on Craigslist because I was really tired of having a music project that I had to spend four hours driving to a week. Right. And uh, found this guy who was in recording school, and he needed a singer for a project. And I was like, this sounds kind of cool. And I've never really... I've been in a studio once when we did the, the band's EP for Blow Up Dolls. And yeah, let's. this is cool, and it's 15 minutes from my house, and I'll answer this Craigslist ad. And, uh... Yeah, and we've been together for seven years. <laughs> so that was where I think technically my my interest in technology, gear, what the violin can achieve sonically really, really started was meeting Kevin and being in the studio with him. He's a guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, really into recording, engineering, and he took on the challenge of that instrument in a way that I haven't seen a lot of engineers tackle. I think a lot of engineers are very afraid of admitting that they don't know something. Mm -hmm. But he was in school. He had nothing to lose and nothing to prove, really. So it was right. very... We got to explore a lot with some amazing gear. His school had such great So you're like mics. his school project to come in and figure this thing out. Yeah, well, he pulled together people all over the Bay Area just kind of session musicians, but we were all friends, and so nobody's getting paid. Right. And it was stuff that he wrote, but he would let people come in and write. So he had these frameworks of songs, but he would just basically let people come in and do whatever they felt like. 
on the song, and he'd have some direction, but it was extremely freeform, where we all got to have a bit of ownership of that music. And so we have that album, too. Okay. We have so many. I've done ten albums, I think, total, uh, over the course of my career thus far. And aside from that first Blow Up Dolls one, they've all been with Kevin. So. Yeah, so tell us maybe a little bit about more about that first album you did with him, and then we'll listen to some of that. Yeah, yeah. So that, that album has some great tracks. And again, it was a bunch of people just coming together session-wise. I was singing on some songs. I think we'll play a track that's the most country I've ever actually written. The only country song I've written in my entire life. And that was the Yeehaw. first song. We sat down together and we wrote the lyrics together. And we sang it together, and it's a little bit telling, I think, at the time that we were not even close to dating, but the stuff we wrote was like, okay, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is gonna happen <laughs> eventually. It was inevitable. Yeah, and that song's called Down the Road, and that was a really fun one to do, and we had everybody in the, in the studio stomping and clapping, and That's awesome. uh, there's a great keyboard player that we've worked with a bunch since then, Dashiell Workbook, and he was on keys and so he and I were in the studio going back and forth on sort of trading solos and the song and just this really awesome time of of learning about tracking with a group of people who were also learning about recording at the same time. Yeah, I got no time and I got no shoes but I keep on running do this after the school was closed and so we would rent the studio from 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. and that would be when we'd be in there working on stuff and then you had a day job and then so, I had a day job so yeah. 4 a.m. you're leaving the studio and then like what six or seven in the morning you're headed out to work yeah so that was and that took about two months in the studio to to pull together and we weren't in there every night it was whenever we could book the spaces out and 
yeah, so we just do a session setup. It also taught me how long sessions take. I mean, the setup is incredible and it's very meticulous. And yeah. so if you think you're going to walk in there and be out in four hours, you are sadly mistaken. Most sessions I've been in are 12 hours and a lot of that is, is sit there and wait. Yeah. We didn't, I, the only time I've dumped a tape was the, the first Blow Up Dolls record, which but was see, this a waste of time. I am. <laughs> this is how old I am. So that's what, that was the old term for when you get the drums in there. Yeah. And he's going to sit there and he's going to kick. And he's going to kick. And we're dialing. We're moving mics. And we're, you mm -hmm. know, so that's, that's all trying to get tones to take. Yeah. We're trying to, the engineer is, he's listening to what this sounds like. And, hey, can I monkey with this and get it where I want? And then, it, I mean, it takes hours to get all the placement right on mics. Oh, hey, let's twist the drum kit 15 degrees because, you know, I'm hearing a, a flutter or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah, that's that's the whole process, getting tones taped, and it's hours every yeah. session. It is, and uh, but I think that people, if you're not thinking about it in a certain way, it can become very frustrating because you've got a lot of downtime. But... For me, that's also opened up a whole lot of opportunities where I'm saying, I really want to get the tone I'm going for in the room, if I can, mm -hmm. and that is going to make everything else so much easier to yep. work with later. If you get the sound exactly the way you want it... Post is fast at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's much easier to blend. And so that was an interesting part working with a solid body, electric violin, where I'm starting to realize piezos have some friction that mm. bleeds into that tone and it was frustrating to to start wanting to shred like these guitarists and doing all this recording and you've got a microscope in the recording booth i mean you're wearing headphones you're hearing absolutely every semitone off that you're playing yeah. and it's very high it feels high pressure you know there's a time limit you're gonna get kicked out and uh, there's just, I think it's a culmination of a lot of different pressures coming together. So being a studio player is very challenging if you aren't accepting in, of the headspace. And it's just it's like everything else, it takes practice. Yeah. So being able to have my first experiences in a studio with that kind of intensity there, but the end result, like nobody was paying money for studio time. We were, we were students. I mean, right. that made really, I think, helped a lot to diffuse That's basically your learning. graduate degree right there. <laughs> no, I got that later. Yeah. And all through this, I mean, the irony was, like, all through this, I have my day job, I have a career that I'm starting in science, and I'm adamant that I'm not going to be a musician. What the heck? So your mouth is saying you're I not going to be a musician, but every other part of your life... Every other second that I'm not at yeah. this job I'm I'm hanging out with musicians and playing music and playing gigs and being creative and so it took me I was 25 when I made the commitment when, when that switch finally flipped over I'm and done I, being a biologist yeah and and that's actually a crazier story I think from a starting point like that was all just even leading up to being ready to make that leap of saying I'm going to leave something that is stable and that everybody in my whole life has told me is a good is a good move. I'm being so smart by being in this field where it's well paid and there's job security and benefits packages yep. and I was I was a designer, exhibit designer for a science museum. So it wasn't like my job wasn't creative. Right. My job was 
awesome. <laughs> and I loved it, and it was great to do it, and then that made me want to go to graduate school. Kind of next step. So Kevin and I moved to Seattle. And in there, we he spent some time working in a big studio in Las Vegas. The stories. Mm, I'm sure. Interesting stories from that. But I think that his experience in those big studios took a lot of the luster out of the the high-end music industry and the players and people that are in that, you know, rap game especially. High-end rappers. It was, it was very enlightening to hear uh, yeah. those experiences. And... They're using two channels on some pretty amazing boards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the music sells in it, and it's heartfelt, and it just wasn't where any of us wanted to be. So I moved to Seattle, went to graduate school, got, it pretty much immediately got a really good internship while I was in school that was going to pay my bills in Seattle, and this was all in science. And then I started my degree, and... The internship wasn't paying me. They were in Canada, and their billing person was sick. And so the, just the checks weren't here yet. And then they still weren't here yet. And I had just made a move. I was living on my own for the first time. I was watching my savings just shrink into nothing. Right. And going, how am I going to pay rent this month and still have enough money for food and books and stuff I need for this degree? I'd get another job, but I'm already working a job. They just haven't paid me yet. And nobody's going to hire somebody between these very specific hours that I'm working this internship and I'm, and I'm going to school at night. Right. And so the only thing I could think of to do was to take my Viper and to take a battery-powered amp, because I've, I've had them since I started playing, and a little loop station, a Boss RC20, up to the street main street by my house in Seattle and play. That was what I could think of to do in the hours that I had between the, all the other stuff. So it was very, very nerve wracking to be in that situation and think, okay, I'm going to do this, but I've never done it before. And then you just go, what if, what if, what if, what if? But then there's the pressure too of like, my light bill doesn't get paid Yeah. if, if I'm not busking. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a way, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to go. I just need grocery money. That's what I need. I'm going to go and I'm going to play for 45 minutes. I had been working on some looping stuff for fun, um, for like a, my cousin's wedding that she wanted. And, and I had done some open mic stuff with loops, but I wasn't super confident with it. And I didn't have a whole lot of material, but I'm like, you know, this is... I'm a pretty adventurous person in general, so it was scary, but I wasn't going to back off from it. And I remember setting up my stuff for the first time and going, what if somebody throws, like, hates this and th throws vegetables at me out their window? You're trying to get groceries anyway, right? right? <laughs> and then I was like, wait, but that's I'll just actually, eat them. that would work. There's this, and that was kind of my way of saying, like, there's no negative here. If right. somebody hates it, you're never going to see them again. Right. And if they throw stuff at you, then sell it, whatever, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do something, that's the worst that's going to happen, and that helped a lot, I think, to get over that hump of first turning on my Viper, and and I played, the wedding song that I was working on for my cousin was Seasons of Love from Rent. Mm -hmm. The district I lived in is called Capitol Hill in Seattle, and that is the, the gay district, like the LGBT district. So I'm playing Seasons of Love from Rent, 
And the first thing that happens is somebody comes around the corner in their car and yells out the window like, Woo, go girl! (laughs) (laughs) It's just the perfect, the perfect moment of like hearing some affirmation at the right time with the right song in the right place. And a a light bulb went off because at the end of that 30 minutes, I had enough money for groceries for the whole week. Yo. And I'm going, okay, this is something I can do and I can turn... I can survive. Like, I can make this work until all this other money comes in. And that's... I started doing it more and more often. It bled into projects for school. I was getting a marketing and communications degree, a master's in that. And so I started talking about... In my communications classes, we were supposed to be blogging. Just as a tool to learn about how to target audiences in different parts of the internet. And as I started blogging about these experiences, playing on the street corner in Seattle... That got more traction. My professors loved that direction because they're just like, yeah, your science stuff was boring. I mean, it's necessary and great, but not as engaging. Science is boring. Science is boring. Um, Not to me, but uh, that made a huge difference. And then because of that, a colleague, a classmate of mine was like, you play, you're a street performer, right? I'm like, yeah, I I busk a lot when I can. And at that point, I had a couple of regulars. Well, I had a regular gig at a local co-op. They, okay. they were asking me to come in on their, like, open house Thursday nights, and they were giving me, like, a lot more food. <laughs> Literally, I was playing for food. That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, so it was becoming a regular thing where people were responding very positively, and that was very encouraging. So this, this, col- the classmate of mine comes and says, I saw on a local arts forum that, the airport and the Seattle airport is looking for street performers to come in an audition to get a job playing at the Seattle airport. And I was like, Oh heck yeah. That sounds exactly yeah. like what I want to be doing. So I went and auditioned and they were like, you have three hours of music. I'm going, no. <laughs> well, how many times do you want me to play that? Exactly. I can play 20 minutes of music. Six times. That's what I did. Yeah. That's exactly what I had to do. So I, I had a half hour audition and I kind of stretched my loops <laughs> yeah. to fill a half hour. There was a lot of vamp soloing. I'm take a long solo. Yeah, exactly. Just a one thirty minute solo and <laughs> be done. Um, but yeah, so I got the job and that was the start of why we go twice a week. We have four hour gig, half hour setup, three hours of playing, half hour breakdown. And they, they paid a flat fee. And you could take tips. Yo. And it was it was huge. And so I quit the internship. And that was my only means of making money after I got that job. And I remember at the very tail end of that internship, I was in Canada where, where it was based. And I called Kevin because I had been sitting on this person's couch making a PowerPoint presentation for three days straight. And I'm in beautiful Vancouver Island, and I haven't seen any of it. And I just called him, and I went... When I'm thinking to myself, I'd rather be practicing, and I hate practicing. (laughs) That's a dirty little secret. I know, I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, I found creative ways around it, a.k.a. busking. Right. (laughs) That's, That's my practicing. I'll practice in public, because it's a lot of pressure to not suck. Right. I called him and I said, I'm, I'm done. I, I want to be a musician. That was the moment. Because I really don't want to be... Because of friggin' PowerPoint. Because of friggin' PowerPoint. <laughs> Thank you, Bill Gates. 
And then nobody paid attention to that presentation at all. They breezed right through it in five minutes. And I spent days and months on it. And I was like, fine. Fine, fine, fine. I could have been outside. I could have been hiking or practicing. <laughs> so I came home, and that's when I, I started the job at, at the airport. And that was a year and a half worth of me just going twice a week, doing that. And then gigs started to pick up. Because people would be coming in or out, and they would say, you're, you're doing this thing, I love it, I'm responding to it, so I needed an album. Because right. I wanted, because there was one other guy, Jeffrey Castle, do you know him? Yeah. Yeah, so Jeffrey Castle was one of the other musicians playing at the airport. Okay. And he was the only person who was out selling me, on, like, who was out doing me on tips. And he always did. But this, this never changed. <laughs> But he had all these albums that he was selling, and, and Jeffrey does great looping, and, and he had such great effects, and he had these albums that he sells, and he's such a staple in the Pacific Northwest. So I was like, I need an album of just these loops that I've been doing. And Where will I ever find an engineer? Oh, right. He lives in the same... He moved here with me. Right. How perfect. So, so you recorded an album doing that stuff? Yeah. And so uh, let's, listen, let's listen to one of those right now. Yeah. This tune is called Particles. It's about connecting with people and the experiences that she had in the airport. Enjoy. It feels organic. It feels, well, it's organic. But, um, you know, you're thinking in your head how slow that was, and, and you say it out loud, and everything sounds like it was the right decision all the time. And I think whenever we look back on where we were and where we've come and how far we've come, everything always seems like you never made a wrong decision. But I kind of attest to the fact that I am a professional musician who started at 25 with no aspirations before that to do this that I don't think that was a mistake I think I learned what I needed to and it's and it's all informed what I do right. but that's a funny part so well the thing is who you are is is a big is I mean it's a result of where you came from 
Right? Yeah. So very much. if you're happy with who you are, then you've got to be happy with where you came from. Yeah. Because it's one and the same. So I would recommend, just to give a quick um, recommendation for a book that for me has been very transformative, and I read it at least once a year when I need to be reminded of a couple of things. And it's a book by an indie musician named Amanda Palmer. Mm-hmm. Do you know her stuff? I don't. So she plays in a punk cabaret band. She's a she's a piano player and a songwriter, and it's called Dresden Dolls. Okay. And so they were kind of indie darlings. They were signed to a metal label before metal labels branched out and diversified. And right. this was in the early two thousands. So she's become the she was the first person to raise over a million dollars on a Kickstarter campaign. Oh my goodness! She is a, a pioneer of crowdfunding and of independent arts. She started off her career as a street performer in Boston, but not a musician. She was a living statue for six years. And she has a quote in her book, and I recommend it for musicians or any creative person really, but I think musicians it really resonates because that's what her career has been about. She said that she received a better education being a street performer than she thought she could have gotten at a conservatory. Some ways I agree, in some ways I don't. But I think to be a performer, that time that I spent being in the street musician's shoes made it so, made me so heart tough as nails in some ways. Mm -hmm. Nothing phases me on a stage. I mean, I get nervous for sure, but. I can be very distracted, and I can still find what I'm doing. People could throw things at me, and I can shrug it off. People don't. People can ignore me, and that doesn't bother me. And that's think that's from street performing because you work so hard to keep people's attention focused on you, or or to grab it for a split second. Right. That's the reward. Is somebody putting a dollar in your in your case is obviously the end result that you really want, but you start to watch the songs that you play, how you play them, what parts get people connecting to you, and it's just this constant feedback feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And if you're paying attention to that, then you start to see what's going to work to any audience, and it's pretty universal. Because in a street setting, nobody's paying to see you, nobody right. wants to engage with you, they all have stuff that they're doing. So if you can make them take two seconds out of their day to interact with you as an artist, then I think that's extremely valuable training. And it's free training. Mm-hmm. It just takes some some guts and some sure. instrument. But you don't have to play anything. I know people that have done that with spoken poetry. I know people that have done that with writing, where they go out and they have to write a sonnet in a couple seconds and oh, keep wow. people engaged. There's a guy in San Francisco that does that. So as a medium, street performing is seen very much like panhandling sometimes. Mm-hmm. But... I think it's it's a super valuable tool to refine an act. And so that was what it did for me. It was refined my looping act into getting more and more complicated and the gear got more and more extensive. And Yeah, so talk about the evolution from I'm not going to be a scientist anymore. I'm doing this, this thing, working in the airport, getting gigs. And where does the evolution of that take you? So I had a band that I was playing with at the same time as well, and we were writing, and that band was called Direct Divide. And I think out of all the work that I've done writing-wise, like that was the most intense I've ever gotten with, with being a songwriter. And not just playing covers and not just playing loops, but writing for a band and 
orchestrating quite a lot because we wanted it to be very cinematic. And so I'm, I'm doing this work in the airport and I'm busking and, and looping and I have the gear set for that. Mm-hmm. But then I'm also doing this very symphonic stuff, but it's right in between symphony and rock and that needs its own separate set of gear. So at that point, um, my, my very much my go-to tone is a Mesa Boogie. And that, those two amps are just my absolute favorite thing ever. So I have a Mesa Mark, thir- uh, Mark V 35 watt head. And that's the basis of all the tones I was doing for, for rock and roll. And then I would be doing stuff on like a Roland's uh, battery powered amplifier and the Boss loop station. Mm-hmm. And that was my, my airport setup. They started to cross over when I discovered um, TC Helicon mm-hmm. put out a system called the Voice Life 3 that combined vocal processing, guitar processing, and a looper. And all of a sudden I could start to bridge that gap between I don't want to take, I, I don't want to check into the airport with a giant pedal board because I still have to go through security every single time I go play. And I can store some things there, but I need, a, I need my violin, I need my pedal board for the other stuff I'm doing. Um, so the easiest thing was to just take the one pedal, and security was very nice most of the time about it. You guys not going through airport security that much. I mean, we had badges, no, but... No, I don't really enjoy airport security. Nobody so. enjoys airport security. <laughs> but it made a difference, the fact that you were on the other side of the airport security. We made much, much better tips, and the airport was keeping good track of that. So from a data side of it, they were really, they were on where are musicians making the most money and they were making sure to put us there, which was, that's cool. It so was really cool. you had cool. to report all your tips to them. Yeah, we reported all of our tips to them. I mean, it was voluntary. If you, if you felt like lying, I'm sure you sure. could, but it was data that they used to really help bolster the program and the program's still going. Okay. So you can still see people playing at the Seattle airport every single day. There's, I think, three gigs going at any given time for most of the day from about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So those of you who are listening, I think episode, and I can't remember, maybe 17, is Jen Cornell, who is a cellist, and she does busking in the Atlanta airport. Uh Uh, Shauna interviewed her about that. And um, so... This all ties together. You, after you're done listening to Raz, and you got you got to finish this. Don't cut out early on me now. <laughs> then you can go check out Jen Cornell and hear about her experiences in the Atlanta airport. Mm-hmm. And they're all different, <clears throat> but the traveling thing. The craziest thing about busking that I you get a steady income. Yeah, there's some variation, but you can start seeing patterns and predicting how much money you're going to make based off of the time of day, the day of the week. And where you're standing. And that was insane to me. That it was predictable. Right. Even though the crowd is, is completely different. Never the same people twice. Just something it's about... Human nature. Just something about certain days and where people are at with their days and what they're going to take time to appreciate. And So educate us. Where, what, when's the best time to busk in an airport? Uh, Mondays are actually pretty good. Mondays are good days. Fridays are good days. Um... If you didn't have one of those days, but you wanted a better tips, you wanted to be in a space where people were dwelling a little bit longer. And so there's a big space in the middle of the Seattle airport where there's all these restaurants circling mm-hmm. this gigantic window. And that was one of the best places to be because you, because people would sit and really soak it up as they were waiting for flights. And that was good. 
Uh, in a busking scenario where you're on a street, you always want a pretty high traffic, high volume spot, but you want to have some kind of space where if people want to stop and dwell, they're not going to get pushed okay. away from you and just from the flow of traffic, because that's also how you get thrown out, is if you can't manage your crowd uh, in a busking scenario, somebody will come to move you along because you're, in, in essence, uh, a safety hazard. Right. So there's a bunch of rules with busking, and I have three cardinal rules when you do that, is uh, don't be too loud, don't be a jerk, like, just kind of have some common sense when it comes to that stuff, don't suck. Yeah. And, and by suck, that's a very generalized term, but again, that's not just play well, it's again, it's a volume thing, it's how you interact with people when they tell you to move, it's, it's a lot of different pieces of it, but... Busking is just engaging with people on a one-on-one. -on -one. So the more people you have available, the more chance that there there's somebody there who wants to engage. Less people, it's it's much harder. So farmers markets are a really good place to find that kind of volume in a space where it's more acceptable and the dwell time is higher. People are strolling through a farmers market. They're not trying to get from point A to point B. You would think that rush hour would be a good time to do it. Don't do it people have places to go and they really can't stop and you might just make up for that in volume but i never had good luck with with commute times for people hmm. in subways or anything like that that's yeah i would have i would have thought completely the opposite yeah so there was an experiment with joshua bell yeah where he went into the dc subway and they the classical people were kind of using that like it was some testimony to how how sad everybody's lives are that they can't stop and appreciate this award-winning classical violinist and all I could think was, he is a wonderful violinist, but he don't know busking. He's a terrible busker. Yeah, Alex Dupuy was talking about that. Yeah. Because Alex was a, was a busker for a while, and he said every rule of busking, he violated. Mm -hmm. He wasn't interacting with people. He was playing he inaccessible music. Mozart I mean, it's in a subway. But... Yeah, play play some Britney Spears or something during a commute. And yeah, there there were just a lot of things about watching the video of him in the subway there people weren't interacting and some were but they were being pulled away and I'm like that's that's why and but that's what busking does for you is you start to recognize even on people's faces whether they're going to be able to stop and engage or they need to move on and you just get a sense of that I think by doing it just like anything else practicing it and so to put somebody who's not practiced in that kind of entertainment into that scenario and expect that it's going to pan out because he's one of the most famous players in the world. I was sort of like vindicated. Yeah. <laughs> like these, these jobs are not equal. They they are subjective professions. We are we are in a subjective profession. So all of that was was super just enlightening to me, and I got my chops up because I can't go playing the same stuff for a year and a half three hours, you know, six hours a week or more as I was practicing yeah, it and doing other gigs. Yeah. yeah, you can't you can't do the same thing. You will go crazy. So, you know, I'd be adding more songs and I'd be writing songs and I'd take those in, but it became a time where I, I started to feel much more comfortable with taking some risks when it came to improvisation and straying outside the box. And as a singer, I think that's when I started to get the most comfortable singing and playing at the same time and building loops not just around my violin but letting my violin be the support instrument to my voice and that's really where that transition happened was the rock band 
and the busking because the busking gave me the physical confidence in playing to trust that I could sing and play at the same time and I wasn't going to mess one or both of them up. Right. And uh, this is when somebody's asking me how to practice singing and playing. Um, I tell people, you know, loop stations are great, but if you really, really want that practice, try to hold a conversation with somebody while you're doing something that you've done a million times on the violin, whether it's a scale or an arpeggio. Get, start simple and get more complex because speech is improvisation. We plan what we're going to say, but it's pretty reactive. Sure. And I started realizing that I wasn't good at improv, improving in my speech when I was improving on my violin because people would come up to me on the street and they'd say, like, what are you playing? What is that crazy violin that you'd have? And I would be monosyllabic because I'm in the middle of a yeah. solo and I'd be like, thanks, nice stuff. Like, completely insane. And so She's special. Yeah, I'm a special snowflake. So that kind of taught me, like, I'm not very good at improvising speech while I'm trying to improvise playing. And so, but it kept happening. That that was not going to stop some people. It will not stop some people. Yeah. That you're, you, you don't have security there to no. keep people away from you while you're playing. No, there's no barriers. So that was actually a really good tool that people would want to engage to that point. I it mean, made it, you have to learn how to engage back. Yeah. And so you'd have to talk to them in the middle of the solo. And I slowly became a little bit more articulate. <laughs> so this solo is going to be a lot less musically interesting, but I can talk now. Just one note. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and that made the singing a lot easier, too, because okay. you, were, you were training your brain to make split to second. Multitask, to yeah. multitask. And it's just like an, a drummer, I think, has to do the same thing. Right. So. I like the concept of looping, and I think it matches the concept of learning in many ways. It's just start simple. Don't don't try to ask yourself to do a whole lot at once and, and build up from there. And that's that was a good foundation for me, is, is even having the loops there. I wasn't doing complex loops. I was doing four bars of pretty basic stuff. And then over time, I'd, I'd keep coming back to a riff. Be like I played that riff the last time I played that song, and that's pretty cool. Maybe I should, maybe I should layer that in, and that be a permanent fixture of this loop. Right. And then the next time I would lay that that in, and then I'd have to find something else to play over it. Sure. So, improv-wise, it was huge to be able to have the time. I mean, three hours you're filling, and half the people don't care. Right. <laughs> it's quite freeing. So, so, so the looping was good. The symphonic pro, uh, the symphonic deal that you were with. Yeah. What was that called? Direct divide. And we got tape on that. So that last tune that we heard underneath the conversation was called Feeling Good. It was recorded live while she was busking at a farmer's market in Monterey, California. This is another tune from her project called Direct Divide. The tune is Kick It. And this is where we'll pause to honor our sponsor, Wood Violins. As you can hear, Raz does a lot of singing and playing. She also plays for hours and hours on end. She needs an instrument that frees her up to entertain to talk, to sing, to work pedals on her pedal board, 
and play extended range music all at the same time. There's only one instrument that fits that bill, the Wood Violins Viper. If you want to learn about how Mark invented the Viper and the evolutionary process, check out episode one of this podcast. You can hear it straight from the source. What I want to talk to you about today, though, is the product line that Wood Violins carries. Of course, you know about the Viper. But they also making an amazing electric cello called the Cobra that gives cellists the same freedom that Viper players have. It mounts on a harness and it frees cellists from that chair. Vipers and Cobras are expensive and worth every penny, but Mark hasn't forgotten about people just getting started or on a limited budget. The Stingray SVX is a fantastic instrument available for well under $1,000. The kids at the Electrify Your Strings event I just played love the SVX violins. And in the middle price range, they have the Nashville, a more traditional looking instrument with a semi-hollow body, the Sabre, which clearly draws design inspiration from double cutaway electric guitars, and the new Legend violin, which is reminiscent of 1930s era jazz guitars. Add in their concert standard and concert deluxe acoustic electric violins, and there's a wood violins instrument for everybody at every price range. Check them out at woodviolins.com or call Electric Violin Shop for more information. Now back to Raz. It is. Um, that was one of my favorite projects that I've done. And that was the thing that made me just bite the bullet and go whole hog. And so we had a drummer and Kevin and I were, Kevin was the guitarist and playing keyboards as well. And I was singing and playing violin and we quit our jobs. In my case, uh, I finished school. As I finished school, we decided to, to make a real go of it and go on tour and leave our apartments and leave our jobs, and we didn't know what the hell we were doing, <laughs> in hindsight. Uh, but we booked a tour, and we were just like, we're not going to stop. I don't care what is going to happen. We're going we're gonna to figure it out. We're going to make it work. So, so that was a how-many-piece band? Three. Sometimes we'd have a bassist come in and, and guest, and that's, uh, that's who you met today, one of my bassists, okay. was this guy at NAMM who came in. I love Nam for that. You just meet people who you kind of go way back with, and it is a chance for us all to network and see people that we keep in touch with, maybe through social media, but we can't meet in person, so that's fun. But went on the road, uh, toured the whole country for a year together as a three-piece band, and then I think it was a good lesson in what the modern music industry is like for a band that's all original. It's very, very tough. And we had some lovely shows and wonderful shows, and we had some complete bombs of shows, and that was really hard to learn the hard way. And yeah. and honestly, we, we tried to skip a step that we shouldn't have, which was to build locally and, and really get a following first. And I think you delude yourself that anything is better than the city that you're in, because mm -hmm. all cities are challenging. 
And so we didn't stick it out and try to build in the city that we were in, which was Seattle, because we didn't really like Seattle for, for many reasons. But um, I liked Seattle, but not everybody did. So going on the road was this idea that, you know, we're going to get discovered or, or we're going to just do this for long enough that somebody is going to have to be paying attention. Right. That's not what happens. You are, in fact, spreading yourself way too thin. You will not... You might get people coming back a second or third time if you're coming through that city again, but you can't sustain it for very long and unless you're putting out so much content and have so much support behind you to market yourself to those cities that growth is going to be so slow that you're going to run out of steam and money before you can get there. So don't make my mistake, kids. <laughs> don't do that. But um, I, I think I, I learned the value of trying to build locally first by not doing it. Right. And so after a year of touring, we had a great show. I loved doing it. The music was lovely. And then finally the drummer had to just exit and go back home. Couldn't sustain it anymore. Just tired of starving. Yeah, I mean, I was supporting all three of us. Uh, I did have a part-time job. I was doing licensing, so I was online, remote, working for a licensing company, uh, basically making playlists for restaurants and retail. Okay. And that's I have I have a marketing degree, so you right. can kind of leverage that, and that's what I've done. If I'm if I'm short on cash, that marketing degree is just like, yep. All right. And I never once thought of it as not like I'm not a musician. I'm still a full-time musician. Sure. So I think there's this thing where we're afraid to talk like we don't have to have side jobs occasionally. It's like, you just yeah, do. Silly. Yeah. You need money? Go get money. Fine. There's no shame in that. Are you going to quit music to do that? Then maybe right. <laughs> think something else. But just don't quit. Might be driving Uber. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. There's. I'm doing a job right now. I'm ending it in March, but... I'm I'm living in a house again, and I hadn't paid rent for three years, and I was like, maybe it'd be nice to be assured that I wouldn't need to find some way to pay this rent during a slow season of the wintertime. Right. It's no shame in that. So I go in and out of that kind of stuff. But year into touring, we were breaking that up, and I wasn't ready to stop, honestly. I mean, I, I maybe it was also this, I could not think of another solution of what to do. We had to keep going. And... That's when I went back, after a year of playing rock shows, went back to the looping stuff and said, okay, here's, here's a thing I can do. It's a marketable thing. I've done it in this, these settings. Who wants this? Who wants to buy this? Who would buy this act? And we kind of came up with a list of people and, and scenarios in which we needed them to buy it. So it needed to be someplace where there wasn't a door charge. Because that usually means you're bringing people in. And we right. didn't have the foundation to do that anywhere. So had to be flat rate. Well, flat rate means covers. Mm -hmm. Taken care of by the looping. But how are we going to guarantee that even with a flat rate that we might be able to sell some CDs and get some tips and find the places that would let us do this? And we thought of... We'd had a couple of successful shows in breweries. So that was where kind of a light bulb went off and we're going, if we're doing the looping act, um, we're going to do it in breweries. Nobody, nobody has a database. Right. Nobody has a strategy for how to do that. So we went on to the Brewers Association of America website, which is a voluntary organization that supports uh, craft breweries across the United States. And they have a, on their website, website they have a list of every single 
brewer registered to them as a, as a member. So we went and we emailed all of them. We made a giant spreadsheet of all of their names and where they were, and we traced out where we wanted to tour across right. the country, and we emailed everybody. And that was a lot of work. And you got enough responses to build a tour. Yeah. We, had, we emailed 5,000 breweries. Holy crap. And I think we got 200 shows. Wow. It's really not like... I mean, 200 shows is a lot of shows. It's a lot of shows. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of shows. But, you know, if you think about it, that's that's a little bit better than a 10% return rate. Or, or worse. I can't do math right now. I have I have NAM brain. That's true. It's a little bit worser. It's worser. Yeah. <laughs> it's worser. No. Temp- yeah. Forget me. But it what? doesn't matter how many... How many questions you have to ask you needed a couple hundred answers and you got a couple hundred answers. we did we asked enough questions until we got those couple hundred answers and that tour was much much better i think because we went into it with a strategy and we knew how much money we were going to be making every single night so we could start budgeting and we could start planning and we didn't have crazy drives for stupid reasons we were able to really we could really route the tour and that was i think one of my one of my better I have a degree in this marketing business thing (laughs) and that was thinking about what we needed to have happen and we found an audience who was willing to pay for it and that was a really good idea at the time and so none of the touring I've ever done and I've been on the road as of June last June I had been on the road for three years so when we moved into our new place in October this past October I was looking at Kevin I was like when was the last time we actually had our own roof like over our heads, yeah. like an address. Yeah. When was the last time we had a physical address? And it had been three years. So that's how long we were out. So are you guys recording on this project, this looping project that you're doing right now? So that I, I kind of considered an extension of what I was doing at the airport. So I have, I have a second album that I did before we went on the brewery tour. Cause mm-hmm. again, I needed something new to sell. So we did another album and I've always tried to keep those looping albums half covers, half originals. Mm-hmm. So right now, um, I have a third album that got recorded but not released. And because I, I actually damaged my voice this past year. Yeah, I remember that. I was touring too much. Yeah. So I, I went way... I mean, there's there's bad idea touring, and then there's off the deep end, three years of touring yeah. and the destruction. It wrecks on your gear and your body. So, uh, yeah, that was bad. Uh, and I had to recuperate from that. So we didn't end up releasing the record because we weren't doing, doing another tour. Right. So there wasn't a reason to do it. And I like releasing records as a package deal, but honestly, in this day and age, I don't hugely see the benefit of releasing a full record unless you need it as a physical product to sell. And most people are not buying music in a physical package. Right. So I would actually recommend against doing full records unless you... A, you if you just want to be traditional and you want that to be what you do fine go for it but i think singles and developing you know getting content out there on a regular basis is now more important than putting out one batch record because you drum up excitement once and you have to sustain that and and it it's really hard to do in this age where everybody's so distracted all the time so i would say i've broken all of that third record up into singles and I've been releasing them kind of more slowly. So speaking of singles and then like what's going on in the music business now, video. Yeah. You did a really cool video recently and released that. Yeah. 
So talk about that. So the video came out uh, the day I left for Nam, so Thursday. Is that the one you're talking about? No, the <laughs> other one. What you're talking about. The one before. So what uh, was the, uh, the the bikini atoll? Oh, or? that one. Yeah, that yeah. was a crazy one. Um, so I still have connections in science, and I got an offer because I, I am qualified to be a field biologist. So if somebody needs field work, they know I'm really good in tight spaces, and I got a chance to go to Bikini Atoll, which is a tiny island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It is also where the United States tested their nuclear weapons after the end of World War II by sinking a bunch of World War II battleships. And we went there to see what was happening to the island and, and the creatures that lived in it, you know, about 60 years after that blast. And... The people I was going with, it was a film crew and this group of scientists, and they really wanted to have something artistic, especially since I was going to be there helping with the science side. So they went, do you want, I kind of want to do some cool music stuff on the island. And they went, well, what about, I was reading about the history of it, and the name of the military operation that dropped the very first atom bomb on Bikini Atoll was called Operation Crossroads. That is a very famous song yeah, by Robert, Robert Johnson. Right. So I told the, the lead scientist that, and he went, what? That's so crazy. And, and I'm like, yeah, it's about, it's about selling your soul to the devil at a crossroads. Mm -hmm. And it just had this very eerie connection because that was where we decided to basically keep developing nuclear weapons after World War II, after we had used them already. Sorry. And less than a year after that, we were exploring how to keep using them rather than looking at the consequences of the two uses we had just right. done. And now this island was supposed to be, they moved all of the inhabitants off the island, did these tests with the idea that these people would be able to come back, and they never were. So it was this deserted island craziness, and we filmed me playing Crossroads on the beach in Bikini Atoll. And that was very, very incredible and very surreal walking through these empty buildings, yeah. these empty military bunkers that they watched the explosions from, and slowly seeing the oil seep up from the tankers that are over 100 feet deep at the at the top. I mean, it's, right. it's a crazy place. So to get to go and then bring my violin, I think that was a bit of a benefit from yeah. my science years. So where access. can people find this video? So that video is on my YouTube page. So if you go to YouTube and type in Razvio, R-A-Z-Z-V-I-O, you'll find that. And then just started a new YouTube series that's more going to be more serialized with a lot of the loops that I've been playing live. And that's the full extent loops, vocals, violin, drum patterns, and it's all being done uh, right in my gear. I never use backing tracks. So everything people hear when you're playing is something that's that was created in front of their eyes. Yes, and that's. I think I've found that for me, I like using, I like using restrictions in order to enhance creativity, sure. and that's just always been a restriction that I I personally care about. I am not a huge fan of backing tracks. I think they can be extremely effective, but I like the challenge. Yeah, it forces you to go. Well, gosh, if I'm not going to use a track. How am I going to pull this off? And it forces you to, to figure out how to pull it off. Yeah, I, and it, it also makes it so that I've played those loops on different types of loopers. So you have to rewrite them kind of on the fly, or you you have to prioritize what the most important parts of the song are. 
and that also helps. And as a singer, you know, there's sometimes there's just not much for if I'm trying to keep my violin out of my vocal range. Like, right. what's my violin gonna do? <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be doing something lower, and it's gonna be doing these rhythmic patterns. And but it's it's hugely amazing for understanding the effectiveness of taking things away from a song. And for me as a looper, that's been something I've been exploring a lot, is what happens if you take the drum beat away for a split Addition second. Addition by subtraction. Exactly. So people really listen for what they're hearing. If if you, Whatever people are listening to, they're going to compare it to what they just heard. Right. So if you want to make them kind of stop for a second and go, oh, what's happening? Take something out. But you do that to make them also wait so that you can bring it back in even bigger than you just did it the there first time and, and that's been a really fun tool so getting to loop vocals in there and drums in there means that i can make these pretty extensive sonic soundscapes but then i i really love playing with you know taking them away for a verse and bringing them back in on a chorus or completely stripping out just the drum patterns on bridges so you can have all the other melodies going on in a bridge take out the drum pattern mm -hmm bring it back in for the chorus. It's going to feel much more exciting because you took it away right. for a split second. So so we probably don't have time to like get into all the gear and stuff <laughs> all that's going of the on. Gear. She's, she's incredibly tech savvy and I got to watch her do some live looping here and it's just, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of signal on. routing, yeah. But let's talk about your new instrument. So yeah, so I got, I had a six string Viper, the my red Viper for many years and I, I, so I say had like it's not in use, it's still there. Present continuous. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. One of them. One of them things. Yeah. So I have a now I have a seven string Viper, and thanks to a very close relationship with the people at Wood Violins, who have become just like family, just my musical inspirational family, they agreed to do something crazy and make it in a finish they've never done, which is a mirrored chrome. So I have this crazy chrome seven string Viper, and that's that's my new baby. It's incredibly hot. I'd seen pictures <laughs> of this thing, and then finally, I think Friday, I think Friday. I saw it for the first time in person, and it was it t takes your breath away. I didn't expect it to be quite so mirrored. Yeah. I mean, I really wanted something. I I told him I was like, I want something that looks like a weapon, like it's gonna murder somebody. Check. <laughs> Check. Yeah, yeah. They they got it. Um, and that's the most amazing thing too. Is I do think that music is such a visual medium now, and then it didn't used to be. Because it didn't need to be, because it, it was so powerful just by itself that, you know, when nobody had TV and nobody had access right. to plays and you know, back in the, where, when all that classical back music was. Back in the olden days back, before YouTube. Yeah. Back when all the classical music was being written, it was the absolute best entertainment of its time. But now we're so visually stimulated by so many things that I think a visual component of performative expression is is much more it's easier to get behind so i really do care i mean i care how i look <laughs> as bad as that is to say everybody cares how they everybody look. really okay. cares, everybody and not cares. Supposed to don't lie it. and say you don't care because you combed your hair this morning actually technically i mean it's pretty yeah. bad <laughs> I, I don't i don't own a comb but you did something <laughs> yeah. for yourself this morning you did yeah Besides just common decency, put some pants on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the starting point of my current rig. And, you know, for different applications, I'll have different setups. But the foundation is obviously always the Viper. I always really like having preamps. I think they're important. I think the piezo pickups in electric violins are just not putting out enough signal for us who use guitar pedals. So I am a big believer in a preamp. Unless it's handled well in in 
a multi-effects processor or something else, but I really like that control. EQs all day long. We are not built, sonically speaking, our frequency range is very different than a guitar, so I like having some manipulation over that, so I go from a radial, tone bone, piezo, DI, and preamp into an MXR, 10-band EQ, which lets me really tweak tone, and that's about the most I do for for getting getting me to zero. Mm -hmm. I consider that, that now now we're at, yeah. now we're at sonic zero. <laughs> now I can add rather than just sculpt and try to maintain some right. kind of control. And then from there, I'm going on my current pedal board. I'm going from there into a uh, full tone OCD pedal, which is a very nice transparent distortion. Yep. You can do a little bit and just get a touch of overdrive, or you can really whale it and get a lot of high-end overdrive without without breaking up or getting too, I guess, saturated. Mm -hmm. It's pretty controllable, which I like. Then I go into a JHS Muffaletta fuzz pedal. Very, very fun fuzz. Some people don't... I, I've talked to some other violinists, and they think it's a bit too much, but Well, they didn't subjective. buy it, and it's not their rig. Yeah, it's yeah. not their rig. But I like the fact that it has fuzzes from multi, like a lot of different eras. Mm -hmm. So there's a Jimi Hendrix fuzz, and there's a 50s fuzz, and there's a 80s fuzz, and then there's the JHS signature fuzz, which is what I tend to stick on. But JHS does a lot of, I like their multi-effects pedals because I do think they represent a lot of circuits. I mean, if you just think about it, pedals are circuits. Right. These circuits are reused constantly, and they're all based off of circuits from the the origin of the pedal world. There's very few circuitries that are brand new. Right. And that's what makes the sound. So you can kind of think about that in a cool way. And I like I like the idea that you can, if you want to have that vintage 60s vibe, you can go and turn on a Hendrix fuzz and have that there. And then I use a wah pedal, which is a 535Q Dunlop multi-wah, which again, frequency control. Yeah. That is it for me. If you give me a little bit of frequency control... I'm going to like your pedal more. <laughs> and then the TC Helicon, the Voice Live 3, has been my, my looping rig, and that's what I use for all of my post-amp effects. Anything that's time-based, because I can set the timing of the loop, and then that's going to actually trigger any delay is going to be at that same tempo. Any tremolo is going to be at that same tempo. And that's really, really nice. And TC Electronic makes some great time-based effects that I really enjoy working with. And then the Mesa is in the middle of that rig, so I try to use an effects send when I can, because mm -hmm. I think that for especially post-amplification effects, it's a really good strategy. And basically that means for anybody, if I'm talking just absolutely too technically, um, that's basically saying that anything gain-wise, any distortion pedal, is actually something that I think should happen pre-amplification, because you're changing the gain patterns that you're sending to your amp. Anything that's time-based, delays, sometimes reverbs, depends on the person. I like putting those after the amp so they can soak up all the amp tone mm. bef before it gets to them. So you're letting all those nice delays actually have that amp saturation before you hear them. If you put it before the amp, all that delay is going to happen, then go into the amp, and then it's all going to be kind of mushed right. together at the end. And I like having those delays really clean and really clear. So that's where I like So using. you're putting all that stuff in the loop. Yeah, I'm putting all and of that in the effects loop. Yeah. Anything that's time-based, absolutely. Most things that have any kind of prettiness cleanup, um, that's where I would put anything of that nature. And and a lot of guitarists will do that, so you can search for things being pre mm -hmm. preamp or postamp or effects chain, effects chain pedals, and and you can find a lot of that. There's some great 
resources online where you can pretty much look up any famous guitarist and they will have a full diagram. The rig run, yeah, exactly, rig rundown. So if I'm going for a specific tone, that's what I do. Here's Raz with a Eurythmics cover, exploring some different sounds with her Viper, and of course singing. I want to talk like lovers do, want to dive into the ocean, is it raining with you? So baby, talk to me, like lovers do. thinking about putting my violin using more synthesizer based modulation because of the way our violins make sound we actually do stuff where it's not as fast of an attack as a guitar because we're not displacing a string we are vibrating a string right so attack wise we're actually slower than most guitars we have oodles of sustain where guitars don't once that string stops vibrating your note is done and we can choose endless keep going just keep going endless sustain and the decay is actually very fast because we haven't displaced the string out that much. So sonic profile-wise, we are the opposite of a guitar, which made me think, why are we always going through guitar pedals, but our sonic profile is, does not even come close to what a guitar sonic profile is. And if you're pitzing, mm-hmm. then you're close to a guitar sonic profile. you still got these short little strings, too. Right. But I think that's why people might pitz for distortion and say, like, that sounds like a guitar, but the second you bow, it doesn't. Unless right. modulation. But so I've been thinking about how to use synthesizer filter envelopes to start manipulating the sound. And I've done some work with that with actually plugging my violin right into a synthesizer. Like a, we have a Moog Sub 37 and or using MIDI converters to start playing with sound that way. There are pedals that are coming out that are more synthesizer based because we are in an era right now where synthesis is pretty hot mm-hmm. and pretty active. So if you are going to get somebody to listen and pay attention to your need as a violinist to make something that works for violinists, I think we have a better chance with a synthesizer 
company than with a guitar company. And that's just where we're at right now. But You're a genius. <laughs> just saying. Um, and then you see all of the modeling that's going on. So you've got modeling in, yep. in your rig. And where have you done a, an A-B test ever with the, the... With the real amp? Yeah, with the Helix set and then, and then the full set. I haven't, but um, a lot of guitar players have. Yeah. Now, the thing is, I don't necessarily always like the way the real amp reacts to a violin. Mm-hmm. But I do like the way the model reacts to a violin. And so when you listen to the AB, man, the Helix is so good. It is so good. It's so close. It's so close. But there are, the thing is, a guitar player may not hear the difference, but a violin player might. Yeah. Because a violin, like you said, is so different from a guitar. They've designed that model to make the guitar sound exactly through the Helix like it does through the amp. But it may not treat a violin just the way mm-hmm. the amp does. So, um, yeah, I really like the way that the Helix sounds with a violin. I like the way it sounds with a guitar, too. Right. But um, I, I haven't messed with a lot of the real amps because, A, I'm using really expensive amps in, mm-hmm. my, in my Helix. I'm using Dr. Z's, and I'm using some big Marshalls. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go buy a, a $4,000 Dr. Z rig to mess with it. Mm-hmm. And then... Because a lot of it, I'm diming these things out, too, inside the modeler. And you can't dime out a Marshall stack and then be in the same county as where that thing is. Because they're just so loud. No, you can't push them. So you're able to push it digitally inside the modeler. And I can get that crack up, which is what I really want, on the real amp. But it it doesn't make any sound. I have infinite control over the volume of that. Yeah. So I can get that just blasty crack up just this amp is about to shake itself in half but it doesn't have to be at 400 decibels that's actually pretty i think i have not gotten to play with something so sophisticated with modeling that you can that you can model saturation overdrive Mm. oh yeah i mean that's pretty cool i i can kind of get that with some of the mesa stuff i've worked with um modeling wise but that's a pretty finesse tool to be able to do that yeah. And that's why I love the tube amps because you can you can gain stage them in such a way that if people haven't tried this, it's it's actually one of the best reasons why people have uh, gain and volume. If you've ever wondered why there's both, right? Because you can stage it so that you're pumping, you're asking the tube to handle a lot of gain, or you can or you can starve it for for right. power and gain, and then push the tubes to have to work harder to output that sound. And when you do that, the tubes react by uh, saturating. And that's where it was an accident. Yeah. That was a total accident uh, from, I think, uh, Van Halen going over to Europe. And they didn't bring the right amps. And everything is, yeah. It's the different power. So they had to get they had to get a power converter, and it made their amps sound different. Mm. And they, they couldn't figure it out. But, it was, but they liked it. They liked, right. this, they liked the power being starved, the amp being a little starved for power, because when they turned up, they got this crazy crackly sound. Sure. So then they started making it in stages in the amps when they brought that back from, from Europe. Well, look at you. Historian, too. <laughs> well, I'm historian. so fascinated by all of it. I mean, and that's where we're in this age where you have access. Right. You know, that yes, the Helix is expensive, but how many amps would it, like, how much money would you have to spend to get all of those models? A couple hundred thousand. Yeah. So I love, I really love the fact that that's accessible because you are also going to those developers and saying, well you're making these 
these parameters, these, these models, based off of an assumption that a guitar is going in, what if we change the frequency envelope? And that's where you're getting into the impulse response stuff, mm -hmm. where people are making pieces of digital technology that mimic real, actual sounds, and they're getting so close. So I think as a violinist, that's really exciting because you're talking about the bar for entry for anybody making violin-specific products to, yep. to be able to do it without wondering. I mean, we know there's a market. Hi, guys. You're the market. Right. But um, not everybody's caught on to that, so it's fun to watch that start to happen and know that it's going to be accessible. So that's, that's the next phase for me. Is I have all my physical stuff, and I love physical stuff, but um, I do think modeling is great. I've been using I Amplitube from IK Multimedia. I've played around with Bias. I like Bias execution when it comes to physical products. I think they do a very, very good job. Um, and then the, the Line 6 has done a phenomenal job right. with, their, with their setup. So there's a lot of options, but if people are looking... For me, that's, I liked the Amplitube because it was a pretty low, low financial bar for right. entry. Which See, nice. right now you've got the Helix, you've got the Kemper, and you've got the, the Fractal. Oh, the Fractal's sort of pretty the crazy. Three, yeah. The three big boys. And, you know, you're you're better than $1,000 to touch any of those. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a big chunk. It is. Know? It's a big ask. But, uh, but then know. how much is an amp in a cabinet? You know? it's, it's more. I mean, it's definitely yeah. more. My my Mesa is probably was about 1200 and mm -hmm. it does it's one thing and it's very heavy and i love it to death but it's not the easiest thing in the you world can't carry it on one airplane no you really can't and that's where i'm going to europe in a few months and i'm working on getting my entire rig all of it down into an ipad rig so everything is processed with the ipad and that's been that's been challenging but it's yeah. been a really fun challenge because it's making me think about music completely differently because now instead of routing physical signal i'm having to route digital apps together and, and make that work and that's that's a whole different ball game but i think it's it's really exciting to see people take that on and so i'm i'm looking forward also to not dragging a pedal board on a plane to europe <laughs> yeah just so an interface and an ipad just an interface and an ipad and um, i have a foot switch that's bluetooth activated and Again, the technology that's even come out the NAMM show this year is pushing that envelope extremely. You heard me geek mm. the hell out about something earlier. I've never heard you squeak before. I, she squeaked. I, I can squee pretty hard when <laughs> I want to. <laughs> I think there was a full, like, hands over the head. Yeah, like, I, I had to full body emote. I was so excited. <laughs> she was a walking emoji. I was. But I think it's very scary for violinists to walk into this world where, A, we know we don't belong. B, I do think we do skew more female um, statistically than traditional guitarists have. The fact so, there's any female violinist. Yeah, there you go. That was it. Well, I mean, more, yeah. How many people you've interviewed that are there are male and female is 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 yeah. awesome. And so there's that, and I think there's this pressure of like, how could you possibly know what you're doing with this combo of stuff that I see you holding in your hands, no matter yeah. your gender? But then that's out on top of it, and to see people start to explore this whole side of it. And it is, it is a endless pit. <laughs> We're at a convention right now with a hundred thousand people in it. Yeah. And it's the Anaheim convention center is unfathomably large. It is acres and acres and acres of nothing but 10 by 10 booths with 
with their technology. It, it is absolutely mind-boggling how much technology there is out there for music production. You couldn't, in a lifetime, you couldn't begin to touch a, a tenth of a percent of it. No, you have to really pick and choose. And yeah. uh, and it, it's just, it's accessible to everybody at some level. And anybody starting with a violin and saying, like, what what's the first pedal I should get? I'm like, whatever makes you happy. Yeah. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever wants makes you want to play it. If that's the nastiest distortion in the world, you buy that pedal. <laughs> and you make your neighbors crazy. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, yeah. <laughs> You play around and you find one that, that makes you smile and buy that one. Yeah, and that's how and it always is. And well that a month from now you'd be buying another one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a pit. And then since Kevin and I have been together for so long, he's an engineer, audio engineer, I'm a musician, he's a musician. Nobody in this equation has any self-preservation or even any inkling of if we're like, I want to buy this. Like, nobody's being the voice of reason. <laughs> so Hey, maybe we have too much gear. Shut, shut that mouth. Shut up. We have sold off stuff. And we, and we have, because we live in such a small space, we're sitting in my tour van right now that I've converted into a house. Yeah. And that was fun. But again, like, DIY, there's the internet. I went online and I learned how to wire electronics because I could and I didn't want to pay somebody else to do it. So, uh, speaking of the van, I'm actually going to, we're, we're running out of time. I'm so but, sorry. I'm no, just it's flattered. great. So, we are going to, um, I'm going to let you tell them where your social media is, how yeah. to find you, and man, she's got so much great content. Go. <laughs> she's got videos of when they were putting the van together and all of her projects and stuff. So, yeah, where your social media information? How so, do people find you? So, my name is Raz, R A double Z. And uh, Razvio, because I'm a violinist, so R-A-Z-Z-V-I-O, Razvio.com, Facebook, Razvio, YouTube, Razvio, Instagram, Razvio. When She's you, got a marketing degree. They're I, all the same. Well, it's also when you have that many letters at the end of the alphabet, nobody's competing with those names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, everything is Razvio. Um, you can find me there. I absolutely adore questions about gear. I mean, as you heard, I will rattle off gear until... The sky is some strange color that in the future, like whatever. But I love hearing questions about gear. I love talking to people who are at whatever stage in your career, if you, even if you just want to chat. Um, better on Facebook. I'm still, as much as I have a marketing degree, half the time I don't know where to find anything on Instagram. <laughs> but Facebook is there. YouTube is where I've, I'm focusing a lot of my energy this year. I'm going to be putting out a lot of videos. I have a couple of demo videos of how to do some of the stuff I'm doing on violin. But I started with this idea of like getting more complex. And then you guys came in with Electric Violin Shop. Right. And I was like, oh, well, you guys can do that way better than I can. <laughs> so I'm going to let Don't believe that at all. But you have access to all of the instruments across right. the spectrum. So it's you're true. able to compare yeah. and contrast a lot more than I can as, yeah. a, as just being a single uh, type of violinist. So I think that's amazing. And I, if, I know you guys are listening to the podcast for Electric Violin Shop, but you guys have your, your Wednesday live stuff. Yeah, and Raz usually will we'll come in, and, and she's always got, like, really helpful stuff to say. So. I, I try to be there. I mean, I think yeah. sometimes I've asked you a question, and you're assuming that, like, I'm making a statement, like, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm like, no, but that was a real question. I love the assumption I that I know everything. I know. No, I don't. I really don't. I mean, it's a learning process, and I love hearing about other people's journeys with gear because what they're going for sonically is going to be completely different. And so I don't have this any proprietariness about my gear or sharing quote-unquote secrets. 
not even for practicing loops or how I structure anything, because I just know at this point, I've all of those pieces, all of that extreme amount of talking that we did to end up where I am right now is, is my story. And it's going to be exactly who I am. So I don't, if you could have the exact same pedal board and you're still not going to sound like me. Well, they got a different soul than you. Yeah, yeah, your expression is different, what you care about is different, how you think about music is different, so I like watching people go through that process of experimenting with pedals and experimenting with sonic profiles and trying out new things or even trying out new styles of music And because it's just a journey to find your sound and it's going to be changing, so I'm just not one of those people who's ever worried about yeah. uh, what anybody else is doing but me. I love, I, I like cheering people on who are in this industry and trying to do, make violin kind of fit whatever is going on in their crazy wacky head. Cause if it is as weird as what's going on in my head, <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> so don't be shy. If you got questions, hit her up. Yes, please, please, please do. Um, she's a big celebrity, but she will make time for you. Oh, please. I'm a big celebrity that's living in a tour van for three years. <laughs> no way. Living the dream. Uh, but I, I love the fact that I, I haven't had to quit yet, and I have no intention of doing so. I made that decision late, maybe. Right. but It's uh, all good. Yeah. It's not it's, a race. Yeah, it's not a race, and I'm not going anywhere. So I'll keep, I'll keep chugging along, and who knows? Maybe I'll just be a, one day a synth DJ that just happens to activate everything through my Viper. <laughs> You you'll be doing by you'll be able to do it with your brain. They just send brain. They even put a, a thing on your head. Yeah, and but then I'm hackable, and that's a whole operating. that's a whole different thing. You're getting me into sci-fi, and this is a this, <laughs> this is this is another thing. Like this interview is going to be five hours long. <laughs> so it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for Thank doing this so interview. Thank you so much, Matt. And uh, yeah, you guys follow Raz and just buy all of her albums. <laughs> oh freaking ten. yes <laughs> buy the albums buy music support live music and support um and look for her coming to your town if there's a brewery anywhere near you she may be in your town she may be in your town right now definitely i, I would say definitely follow me on youtube because that's that is where i'm focusing this year and as much as i can do video content um now that i'm more stable and not on the road as much but i say that and then this year i'm going to europe alaska hawaii texas who else knows but like that's not touring, but... That's a great life if you can get it. <laughs>that wraps up another episode of Rockstar Violinist. Special thanks to Wood Violins for their support and to Raz for so much of her time and expertise. She's dead serious about being happy to answer questions. She's a regular contributor on our weekly live streams. If you didn't know, Electric Violin Shop has a weekly live stream, usually on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We pick a different topic every week and share what we know as well as encouraging our viewers to chime in. We do a lot of product reviews and usually have the manufacturers log in and take questions. We do some teaching on amps and effects with tons of audio demonstrations. We've talked about tone, improv, how to get sponsors. We've had Ask Me Anything, just whatever comes up. So please join us for those on Facebook and Instagram. Anyway, thanks for listening. Check out Raz on social media. Swing by woodviolins.com electricviolinshop.com and we'll see you next time rock on
sister. 